Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 40 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 40, we are coming to you live, or, well, from your perspective, pre-recorded, from internationals, or at least 50% of us are uh, calling in from uh, internationals. Uh, Scott is at his uh, home in lovely Michigan. Uh, I am representing Inside Quizzing at Internationals uh, down in, well, it was sunny, but now it's thunderstormy uh, Florida in Orlando, Florida, which has been an enormous amount of fun. Today is our sort of by day, our day off. Uh, so it's a opportunity for Scott and I to get back onto the podcast and record and talk about all kinds of things. So we're going to lead off with a listener question, uh, which is very interesting and sort of leads into a lot of discussion ideas. And then we're going to probably unsurprisingly talk a lot about internationals. I'm going to share kind of my experience having been, you know, back at internationals now for like, this is the first time I've been back in something like, I think, 14 years or something. So, uh, you know, all of those sort of memories from the past kind of uh, showering into the present day. So I want to kind of provide some experience and I want to, you know, in uh, inquire uh, with Scott into or actually let me say that more simply. I'm going to ask Scott some questions about some things that I experienced at internationals and get his sort of wisdom and uh, thoughts around those sort of subjects. And then uh, to wrap up, we've got a couple of ideas that came up from discussions that I've had with folks uh, both outside of the Pacific Northwest District uh, here at internationals, but also primarily a lot of these ideas actually were discussed with the internationals team from PNW while here. And uh, uh, ideas around things that we can try in PNW for next year. So I wanted to kind of share some of those ideas. None of these are decided. Uh, these are just sort of ideas we're, we're floating around. So kind of you're getting a preview into some of that stuff. So with that, uh, why don't we dive into the first question? And uh, Scott, why don't you take it away? All right. So this comes from our listener, Matthew. And his question is, why is there a limit um, of two verses on quote questions? Oh, wait, no. He's asking, why is there a limit of two quote questions in a quiz? Um, because he feels that often the keyverse quizzers get left out of a quiz sometimes because there is a maximum of two quote questions in a quiz. So I initially misread his question. And um, so I think – I'm not sure exactly why there was originally one or two quote questions. Do you have any idea, Griffin? I don't know. It probably was just weighted around the idea of keeping some, you know, suppressing some of the more specialty questions. I have a feeling if we go back way early in time, uh, probably the original question was the standard question, the interrogative, and they started adding specialty types because they felt like, well, interrogatives are great, but wouldn't it be great if we also had quote questions? But let's not have a quiz where it's 100% quote questions, and they sort of throttled it. it you know, uh, Bible quizzing in some ways shares a lot with uh, baseball in terms of our history. The initial idea of Bible quizzing would almost be unrecognizable to us today. There's been these constant iterations around the rules and changes around the rules to get us to where we are right now. And so my thought of, of you know, why are quote questions limited to the current scope, either one to two, two to three, that kind of thing. It's just basically a balancing act year to year of how do we want to encourage specialty uh, questions without, say, overpopulating a quiz with specialties. I mean, certainly we still want to have 
the most common type be the standard question, uh, because otherwise it ceases to be a standard question. Uh, but certainly, uh, quotes are, are important as a key. I would, I would encourage Matthew to also consider that as a key verse quizzer, quotes are not the only thing you're going to be jumping on. I mean, there's obviously there's the quote and the quote these two verses, but there's also the finish, uh, this verse, finish these two verses and finish this questions, finish this and the next verse questions. Those all comprise additional sets beyond just the, the, the current limitation on the, on the quote question as well. So you do get, a decent number of questions that are there. And of course, the questions that you are, sorry, the verses that you're memorizing for the quotes and finish the verses are also going to be coming up as multiple answer questions, standard questions, and so on, chapter reference questions, chapter verse reference questions. So if you specialize as a key verse quizzer, you're not limited down to just the quote questions. I mean, you are really getting across basically every question type if you focus on key verse questions or key verses uh you're just um uh there's just other parts of the material that you could dive into more to get additional questions standard questions references and so on yep and i think in the most general of senses finish the verse questions and quote questions are the most limited types because they are limited um to specific material um, all the other question types could theoretically come from any verse in the entire text. And I think there's definitely a desire to have the question types that come from a predetermined and specific part of the text to be um, decently limited. Now, that said, PNW is, has, currently, um, has currently, has in the past used the one to two quote question guideline that w- used to be in the rulebook. Now, the rulebook has been updated um, and actually sets out different question type minimums and maximums depending on if it's a gospel year or a non-gospel year. So in a gospel year, there should be two to three quote questions in a quiz. Um, And in a non-gospel year, which is coming up, there there will be three to four. Now, it's yet to be decided what PNW will be doing next year. Um, I think as time goes on, it makes more and more sense to just um, adopt what the CMA rulebook is setting forth so that there are less changes for our quizzers when they arrive at Great West or um, at internationals. And so we will see what will be going on next year. Um, But it could be that instead of a maximum of two quotes per quiz, there is a minimum of three, uh, which would be quite a big change, I I would assume, in the average number of quote questions asked in each quiz over the course of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of those decisions are actually going to be taking place here fairly shortly. Um, Once Internationals wraps up here, probably a week or two after it's over, we'll be circling the wagons in PNW leadership and making those decisions uh, for the coming year. And, uh, and of course, as soon as we make those decisions, we'll be broadcasting those, you know, widely and loudly and, and so forth. If you want to check out our website, pnwquizzing.org, that, that'll have announcements and information there as well. Um, but yeah, the board of directors will be getting together, you know, within a week or two of internationals and we'll be sorting out some of these particulars. My feeling is pretty much aligned with Scott. I, I have a feeling that the ultimate decision will be that we will be pretty closely, if not exactly aligning with what internationals does in terms of question type 
minimums and maximums just because uh, it's simpler that way. Uh, there's no confusion. There's no adjustment period that needs to be made. And honestly, the question type minimums and maximums, although I have some tiny little tweaks I would make if I was Grand Poobah of internationals, uh, they're, they're a pretty good distribution set, or not a distribution set. They're, they're a pretty good set of guidelines uh, for question types. And so I feel happy to adopt those. Yeah, and for some behind the scenes, um, multiple answers right now are two to seven, and I have no idea why the maximum was seven. Even if you're counting reference multiple answers in that batch, seven is kind of a ridiculously high maximum um, relative to reference questions, quotes, and finish the verses. But um, it was heavily observed that at internationals, quizzers could specialize on multiple answers, get two to four of them on average a quiz. Um, and do quite well on them while memorizing a relatively small amount of the material. Because um, you could really write a really a really good multiple answer list, and if you knew it well and jumped on a syllable and a half, you could really clean up at internationals. And there was a desire to reward or um, encourage through results uh, quizzers that w- were going to study a larger amount of the material which is why the minimums and maximums of multiple answers came down a lot and the minimums and maximums of quotes and finish the verses went up. And that is coupled with the fact that there's a growing trend at the internationals level to treat every verse or almost every verse as eligible for those questions. Now, that's not obviously not something we do within the PNW district. Um, and so having... It would be a little bit interesting going to the, I think it's three to four for both finish and quote, um, with our limited um, and published keyverse list. That could be interesting. Um, but at the internationals level, where just about every verse is up for a finish or a quote, um, I think the changes in minimums and maximums of those and multiple answers have definitely shifted the scale towards encouraging quizzers to go after those finish the verses and quotes, which is encouraging um, quizzers to memorize a greater amount of the material and to review a greater amount of the material, which ultimately is the goal. Yeah. Well, I will say one thing about multiple answers uh, here at internationals. That was one thing I noticed uh, very quickly. Uh, there's very few multiple answers in a quiz. Uh, I don't know. I, I haven't talked to Zach. I, I haven't talked to anybody about what the distribution uh, numbers or ranges are for the, the quiz generation, but I want to say it feels like the number is something between one and three. Uh, per quiz with t- with very, very rarely do you see as many as three. I mean, most of the time you really only see about two uh, multiple answer questions. Uh, so and, I, and of course, I could just be imagining three. So it may only be one to two multiple answers per quiz. It's just been a it's been a very small number. And I've I've noticed some quizzes will go by where I don't recall seeing a, a multiple answer question at all. Uh, which is just very interesting. And of course, on the flip side, there is a tremendous number of quotes and finish the verses. I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm, I'm, uh, I, well, I might, I'd like to see maybe multiple answers being represented slightly more than they are, at least right now, but, uh, I don't think it's necessarily bad where things are at. I enjoy the fact that there is a fair, certainly at internationals, having so many quotes and finish the verse type questions is, um, uh, it, it really does work very well at internationals because of the, the 
the strength of the memorization at this level. I think at district level, it may be more problematic. Uh, you would probably have a lot more no jumps uh, going on in situations like that. Whereas in at internationals here, uh, you've got people who are jumping very quickly, couple of syllables, and uh, able to quote it just fine. And so I think it, it works. So in a sense, there almost might need to be a question, uh, a question type distribution separation between internationals and district, although I don't really like to advocate that because of the complexities of having two different systems. Yep. So it is one to two multiple answers in a gospel year. Um, so you, if you heard three Griffin, that's either your, uh, your poor memory or um, an incorrect or um, an incorrect distribution that was generated. <laughs> Very likely it's my memory. <laughs> but I think in since we adopted CBQZ full on this year for our question um, question set generation, it really I showed how much of an outlier the seven maximum for multiple answers was, because CBQZ as long as it had fulfilled the minimum requirements would just say like oh, what type am I furthest from hitting the maximum on or exceeding the maximum, and so it would pick multiple answers at a much higher rate than had previously been selected by humans because humans were almost ignoring that high maximum and kind of smoothing um, the question types that got asked above the minimums, if that makes sense. And so um, I think it's an interesting case of um, a pure unbiased algorithm identifying um, an inconsistent uh, rule set. Yeah, yeah, very true. All right, next topic, Griffin. Yeah, let's move on. So, uh, internationals. Uh, internationals is happening. Uh, it is still happening, although not today. Uh, today is our break, and uh, we are uh, we've uh, completed prelims on uh, Saturday and Sunday, and we also went through XYZs, which I get or XYZs, which are sort of the tail end of prelims. And uh, Scott, do you want? Do you have any stats handy that you want to share? Uh, you've been tracking this from afar quite closely. Um, I don't have any super good ones. I th I think um, the average number of points that it takes to be top six, so avoiding X Y Zs, and to be top nine, are very very consistent year over year. It's usually right around twelve and change to be top six and. Um, right around nine to be top nine. And it's kind of interesting how it holds true almost every year, regardless of the mix of teams or the material. Um, those numbers can usually be relied upon, which is nice as a coach, as you're seeing how your team is doing in the first uh, third or first half of prelims. Yeah, very cool. Well, P&W is doing very well. We have one team here, and uh, we... Uh, did well enough in prelims to avoid having to go into XYZs. Uh, we are currently, uh, as far as I know, uh, slated into fourth place uh, coming out of prelims, which is a very healthy place to be in terms of uh, going into uh, brackets. Brackets start tomorrow, and uh, we do brackets on Tuesday and a little bit on, uh, sorry, just Tuesday, I think, and then Wednesday is when we do championships, uh, and then uh, we all fly back on uh, Thursday. So that is uh, what's coming up here. So I think right now PNW is in a very good spot. 
uh, fourth place is is a, is a very very respectable place to be, and it's a good launching position to get into finals. And uh, we'll just kind of see how things go. But that being said, the quizzing quality here at internationals is. Uh, I mean, it's very good. Obviously, you would expect it to be very good. It's the best of the best. Uh, but it's always one of those things where when you experience it, it's um, the, it, it's astounding, the level of, of quality difference. I mean, certainly when we go to Great West, we expect great quizzing and we always get great quizzing uh, because we're competing against uh, two very good districts. And it's a great thing for P&W to be involved in. Uh, but then when we come to internationals, it's 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 an escalation of that even to a higher level. And of course, it's fantastic to meet people from all across uh, both countries and uh, to quiz uh, on scripture together. It's it's just a fantastic thing. So I've been really blessed and humbled again by this uh, the internationals experience and seeing these quizzers perform at such a remarkable level. That's great. Have you had any sense for um, how easy or difficult the questions are? In my experience, internationals definitely tended towards easier, um, really focusing on interrogative questions. They were, on average, key quite or unique a, a lot faster than within PNW or Great West. I have actually been very surprised, pleasantly surprised by the quality of the questions. Now, uh, I haven't done a particularly strong analysis of this because I'm, I'm literally just, um, I, I'm not reviewing the questions before each quiz. I'm, I'm pulling them out of an envelope or, well, not an envelope, a, a folder and, uh, just, and reciting them. So I'm really focused more on reciting them properly and, and calling quizzers properly and that sort of thing. But in what I do remember in going through with them, uh, I'm actually pretty happy with the questions that have been, that we've been seeing. There have been some, not many, but there have been some that have become key on the fifth word, uh, which is fantastic in my opinion. I mean, it, it it's, it's, uh, I know the quizzers at, here at internationals probably hate those questions because they're 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 almost tuned to jump very fast and so uh, having those fourth and fifth word key questions especially interrogatives uh, there was one that was a finish the verse that only became key on the fifth word uh, and it was pre-jumped on uh, and I don't mean pre-jump in a you know half syllable way I think there was like maybe two full words maybe two words in one syllable that got out and there and then there was jump but it wasn't enough to be key on so it it's certainly been the variety of questions and the variety of when they become key has been good uh so far uh in in terms of like reading through these questions there was one error uh and it was really just a typographical error there was um on the very first quiz there was a quote two verses that was marked as just a quote rather than a quote two verses. Other than that, I I don't believe I have experienced a single error in question writing yet. Uh, so I'm I'm very pleased with the the question pool we've experienced so far. That's great because there were definitely years where I was participating that um, it was clear that there was a lot of. Um, kind of handpicked selection of the types of, say, interrogatives or multiple answers or situation questions or finish the verse questions that were included in the set and the ones that were not. Um, and I, I very much appreciate an approach that just attempts to write really good questions and then select them randomly into quizzes 
which will reward the quizzers and teams that know the material overall well and have a very good sense of, on average, when a question is becoming key, rather than knowing the material kind of well and jumping on, say, two syllables because you know that it's often unique and there's often a unique word up front. Um, And I think because that sort of format of questions will often not reward the best prepared teams. But when there are a random sprinkling of finish the verse and interrogative questions that are not key until that fifth word, um, it is unlucky for the team that wins it, but over the long run, the teams that are most disciplined in their jumping and know the material the best will score the best, which is what you want to be rewarding. Yeah, it's been it's been a great experience so far. And I and you can tell uh with a lot of these quizzers when they jump and I I I, I hesitate to call it pre jumping because I mean, I suppose technically it is a pre-jump with, with you know, if something becomes key on the fourth word and you jump on the second word, it is technically a pre-jump. But it's not eh, – What's I don't know a good way to explain it. It's not an irrational pre-jump. It's a, it's a strategic pre-jump or that's not even a right way of saying it. But it's, it's not an error, um, although it results in an error. <laughs> I, you know what I'm trying to say. It's, it's not a strategic error to jump on two syllables on a finish the verse – uh, it's just unlucky if you do that and it's key on the fourth. And there have been quizzers who have done that, experienced that, and you can see in their face this thing of like, there's this, this, this flash of a facial expression of like, I know I'm going to get this question wrong, but I didn't screw up. Right. Like this was this was a calculated risk. It didn't pay off this particular question, but that's OK, because the, the, the strategy is going to be sound over the course of the meet. Yep. And that's exactly I mean, the teams that know that the speed that they want to jump at and can hit it every time and don't let an error like that get them down are the ones that do well. Now, I've, I've never really understood um, the actual definition of pre-jumping the way the rule book talks about it, it almost implies that the only thing that's a pre-jump is when you have jumped when the quiz master has discernibly but not audibly begun reading the question. Um, Because, I mean, pre-jump is not explicitly defined. There's really no need to do that otherwise. I know some people just use the term pre-jump to mean any jump before the question has um, been fully completed. But I see inconsistent usage of of pre-jumping a lot and just inconsistent. I don't know which one's right or wrong if there's even a right or wrong. Yeah, and I don't and I don't like using the term pre-jump in describing what I just described as pre-jumps because pre-jump usually has a negative connotation and I don't think it's wrong to jump. I don't think it's wrong at all to have a strategy of jumping on, let's say, two syllables and something becomes key at four. I, I just don't think that's wrong. I think that's a risk that you have to take. Uh, sometimes it'll work out. A lot of times, I think overall, the majority of the time, it will work out. Uh, sometimes it doesn't. And those are that's just the, the risk and the calculation, the math that you have to do uh, to be you know at the upper echelon when it comes here. But one of the things... Uh, one of my sort of another experience thing that 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 I've had uh, here is just being wowed by the quality of the quizzers who the the quality of the preparation. Uh, they they are being able to jump incredibly intelligently, incredibly effectively, 
and get questions answered properly a lot. And that's just fantastic to experience uh, as a quiz master. It's fantastic to uh, go into a room and just sit there when I'm on a break and listen and watch and just observe how great these quizzers are. It's fantastic. Um, it, this is, uh, I had it. So true story. I think this was, I think this was Saturday towards the end of the day on Saturday, standard interrogative question. What guh? That was it. Is it like gushed or something? Uh, like no. Blood? Uh, so what guh or governor? Uh, so I'll give you, I'll form the next <laughs> syllable. It was an L shape that I was making, but I did not pronounce it. I don't know. Uh, my father's glory and the quizzer jumped, thought for about 23 seconds and then answered it correctly. Is Gloria unique word? I don't think so. Um, I don't remember it being, I don't remember it being bold. I'd have to look it up, but I was just, I was, I was shocked and amazed. I turned to my answer judge. He turned to me. We both had expressions of just being really impressed. And he said, I didn't think there was a chance he was going to get that. And, and he did. And that was, that's the kind of caliber that's just sort of normal uh, at international. It was just, it's a fantastic thing to experience. Yep, I love those questions that are just very, very impressive, and it's not um, um, like it's definitely impressive even when it's a shot in the dark because, like, when it's like I don't know if there was only one possible one that the quizzer just knew in this case, but I remember a question at Great West um, situation question with a like who said it and how and to whom or something, and a quizzer jumped on a half syllable or something, and there was like nine quotations that started with that word, um, but the I just saw the quizzer mentally walk through them and knew that there was one that had this mix of questions and answered it right. And it was a lengthy quotation. And I was like, that those are the coolest questions to observe, you know, when you're quiz mastering is someone who has just command of a type like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the, one of the things that another sort of experience or, or I guess this is more an observation that I had about international so far is that, um, each district, I mean, obviously we have a shared singular rule book for internationals. Everybody has a copy. Uh, the CQLT manages that through the rules committee. You're still on the rules committee, right? Uh, I am. Yeah. So, I mean, we all have this shared single rule book. But what's interesting to me is that each district interprets the rule book ever so slightly differently. So, in a way, I mean, we're all starting from the same clear black and white text, right? But then, as we're meshing different districts together, some of that isn't really particularly easy because each district interprets things that are from the text uh, ever so slightly differently. Now, I mean, obviously, there's not going to be wild or there shouldn't be wild differences, but there are different things of like, well, what does the word similar mean, right? Uh, and there's one district that, that says, well, similar means exactly this. And another one says, well, similar doesn't mean exact because otherwise we would use the word exact and similar means this other thing. And so getting into those kind of details and meshing the districts together has been very interesting. And it kind of reminds me a lot of interdenominational ecumenical summits, in a sense, where you've got uh, church, church, different church bodies, different church uh, histories, uh, different church uh, histories, or not, what's a different word than histories? 
just different denominations, different cultures uh, coming together and saying, yes, we have a shared scripture, but what does this particular passage mean? What does this particular passage mean? And having people say, well, you know, there are these sort of fringes of Christian doctrine that some people interpret slightly differently and trying to figure out what's this sort of ecumenical core that binds us together. And that's been an interesting experience here in terms of people's different approaches to both rulings, but different approaches to just how to interpret the rule book that I found, you know, very interesting. I am sure. <laughs> I don't know if I have anything specific to add. Yeah. Well, one, one thing that came up um, that I found particularly uh, uh, curious, uh, that I, it's actually a few different things that kind of came up in, in terms of rulings over the last couple of days. And I wanted to get kind of your thoughts on some of these things. There was, there was some confusion that I, ex that I witnessed when it came to the idea of what does it mean to have a full rotation of, a, of the material in a quote or a finish the verse type uh, question. Uh, now, this was something that was discussed at least a couple of times in the coaches meeting on Friday, Friday evening. And uh, Heather was here and or is here still. And Heather did, a, 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 I think, a particularly good job of going through that what the concept of full rotation means and how somebody is correct or incorrect based on what that means in terms of full rotation on a quote or finish the verse. But I've seen that be misunderstood even after the fact. And I found that very interesting. So, you know, Scott, from your perspective, could you describe what full rotation means? Full, full rotation means that um, the sequence of words, regardless of where you are starting this full rotation from, uh, but the sequence of words has to be completely correct, beginning to end, um, with no no gaps at all. So, and one thing that came up, and that this is sort of how I described it to, I forget who I was talking to, it was somebody over lunch. I described it as, imagine a, a, a verse, it's a finish the verse, or let's say it's a quote, right? Let's just say, call it a quote. And the verse is one, two, three, four, five, right? Those words, one, two, three, four, five. But mm -hmm. as you jump and you say one, two, a, four, five. The quiz master has to say again. So you go one, two, three. At that point, you're correct. But what Heather was talking about on Friday was, well, if they still have more time and they're still in the middle of the verse and they're quoting, don't interrupt them. Go ahead and let them finish out the verse, right? Go ahead and let them say four, five at the end, right? But here's where it gets kind of confusing, I think, for some people. They are correct the moment they say three the second time around, right? So if they go one, two, A, four, five, again, one, two, three, they are correct right then. However, correct. they can go ahead and continue to say four and five. But here's where the confusion sets in. What happens if they don't say four, five? What if they say four, nine? They're actually still correct. And that's the part I think that's confusing people. Sure. But I mean, I kind of – a situation generally similar to this comes up during the year where I have a short interrogative question and the quizzer answers it right but just has a full steam of head. Uh, full steam – is full steam ahead um, or has a full head of steam. And 
I'm just like, well, they're quoting scripture correctly. I'm not going to just jump in and make them stop. I'll let them finish out the sentence or whatever. Um, and they could theoretically make a mistake in, in material that is then past anything that I care about because they're already right. Um, and theoretically someone could then challenge because they said incorrect stuff. Um, but I've never had that happen. If it happened, I might, I might just say, you know what? They were correct. And I was just letting them keep quoting stuff. And I see how that's misleading. I'm going to overrule this challenge, but I'm just not, we're not going to count it as an overrule challenge. Um, and to me, it's very simple. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I mean, and this kind of goes back to something we've talked about in, in previous episodes that a quizzer is correct before they're incorrect. Like when a quizzer is correct before they're incorrect, they are correct, right? They can be in a state Except of for... not correct enough. Um, so, you know, they are not yet wrong, right? But they're not yet correct. But once you get to this sort of that point of like, you're correct, that's it. However, at internationals this year, there is a slight alteration to that. Uh, and I want to get your opinion on this. Uh, so the slight alteration on that is normally speaking in every case that we've discussed so far, uh, like the full rotation case or in an interrogative or, you know, whatever it happens to be. If, if you are correct and then you become incorrect, you are still correct before you are incorrect. However, if you are quoting, say, John chapter 5, verse 2, and you quote John chapter 5, verse 2, word perfect correct, your first run through, but then you proceed and quote the first two words of, as, as an example, the first two words of the following verse, you are incorrect and must be called incorrect. And this, this, is interesting to me because it essentially violates the notion of you are correct before you became incorrect. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I guess I can talk about it. Um, I mean, I think it's ludicrous. I mean, you have definitions for correct and on no question type, have we ever cared about what a quizzer does after they are correct? But now we're just going to, for one single type, or I guess a few types, we're going to say now we care. So, so I think it's ludicrous to begin with. That's one. Second point is implementation is difficult because I heard that if the quizzer has some sort of pause after finishing the verse and the officials fail to stop them and then they continue, that they will not be considered to have gone out of context. Or, which That is, that is that precisely the case, and I... I agree completely. I think it's a ludicrous finding because it violates the correct before you're incorrect uh, sort of thing. And it sets up subjectivity where there doesn't need to be any subjectivity at all. How long of a pause does it need to be, right? Like, like that just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Like this notion of they, they, they pause to take a breath and they continue, but they weren't pausing for the quiz master to respond like I, I now have to make these subjective rulings on stuff. It just seemed bizarre to me. And my whole thought of like, if somebody is able to quote verse three properly and they trail into verse four, like, I just don't understand why I should count them wrong. Now, if they don't, if they don't, if they're quoting through verse three and they make a mistake and then trail into four, then absolutely, you're out of context, you're wrong. 
but that's like, that's unambiguous. It's objective, right? And I, th I think that's really the, the thing that gets me. I think more than anything else is anytime there is something that leads into subjectivity, it makes me uncomfortable. I don't like the idea of some of the context rules in terms of like when you are, uh, what puts you out of context or not, not in terms of number of verses, but like, you know, we've talked about this before and uh, those rules are subjective. I recognize they have to be, but I don't like them, <laughs> you know, and in a sense, I almost want to do away with, uh, with context rules entirely because of the subjectiveness of them. Um, and I, I think in, yeah, anyway, so, so I completely agree. I think I, I just don't know that it buys us anything. Yeah. And so I think it's ludicrous to begin with because we're just artificially throwing this in on one question type when we could theoretically throw it in on other question types. Um, and the, the implementation is subjective. You add in subjectivity. Now, if you want to take the standpoint that, hey, on a finish the verse or a quote question, um, the quizzer knows exactly the scope of it, and we want them to know the scope of it. Sure. You know, like, I could understand that being a desire, and if you want to take it as far as requiring them to stop, like, it's not something that I love, but I wouldn't, like, put up a huge fit about it. But I don't think any change to the rulebook or to – there should be nothing – um, implemented for internationals that has not been in the rule book um, by at least the previous calendar year or something. And like, I'm on the CQLT rules subcommittee. I'm a district coordinator and I heard nothing about this. And so if I was coaching internationals, I would have thrown a fit because I'm like, why are you changing anything when people are showing up to the meet? And I don't know. I think that's probably the mo the most ridiculous part of it that you're, you're changing um, the rule set um and telling the competitors about it when they arrive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, another one that was kind of interesting to me was um uh this is something that actually came up in quizzing um and uh and again this kind of comes from the you know different districts are interpreting the rulebook slightly differently. We're coming together and we're meshing these things together, but it was an interpretation of context that I had never heard before and uh, I thought was very strange. So a quizzer was quoting, and I, I forget exactly what verse this was, and I don't remember the quizzer. I don't remember what quiz it was. I, I'm, I barely remember that it was in John, so just bear with me. But let's say they were quoting from verse 15 of something, right? And in verse 10 there is similar wording to what is in 15. And this was a, if I remember correctly, this was an interrogative uh, question. So they started quoting in verse 15. They flipped over and started quoting in 10. And it was not just a single word. It was several words, right? It was like, I don't know, um, a good four or five words, you know, it was definitely, it was definitely enough words that clearly established that they were quoting in 10, right? So it was clearly enough that if they were quoting in verse nine, I would have called them out of context, but they weren't, they were in 10. Okay. But mm -hmm. since they were in 10, and of course they started, you know, doing this. And, and of course I don't have the luxury of CBQZ automatically looking up, 
the context for me. Um, so, you know, I've got my paper in one hand as I'm following along with one eye, and then my laptop's over here, so I'm moving my other hand over and trying to single-hand type uh, the location and figuring out, like, okay, there they are, they're up in 10. Okay, cool. So I was letting, you know, I let the, uh, the clock continue. So the clock continues, they're in 10, then they go back to 15, and they answer the question correctly. And so when they get back to 15, they answer it correctly. Uh, it gets, uh, is it challenged? I forget I how believe it, it, it You told me the scenario, and I believe you did say it was challenged. It was challenged. And ultimately the ruling uh, was that uh, because there was a pause between going from verse 15 to verse 10 that this was the thing that said, and I, and I, in the moment, uh, the, I'll, I'll describe how I, I heard about it in the moment. And I was like, what? And then I'll just, then I think I got a better understanding after the fact, right? Cause I talked to a few different people after the fact and I'm, I'm sort of like, oh, I sort of see where they're coming from, but I still disagree. So because there was a pause between quoting in 15 and quoting on 10, they are, they are considered to be wrong because they're answering the information incorrectly, which I was like, what? But then I, after the fact, in talking with people, they were saying, well, Griffin, that's because when they pause, you can say they are providing an answer to your question. They're not quoting. So if you're quoting from, from 10, you're still in context. You still have time. But because there was a pause between 15 and 10, they are, they are out of context. Sure. Okay. So what do you think about that in terms of an interpretation? And what do you think about that is, you know, is that a good idea, bad idea? So this is kind of, this is a classic scenario because I was always told as a quizzer, be quoting, don't be giving an answer. Right. Um, and in general, it makes sense. You shouldn't just be saying like um, stilted or s siloed words. You should be trying to quote entire verses and entire passages. Um, now when I became a quiz master, I dug into the rule book and there is zero concept of quoting in the rule book. That word does not appear. So there is no concept of quoting versus giving an answer that does not exist. The rule book does say only the first answer of a quizzer will be considered, but that's all it says about it. The way I always interpret it it is a quiz master is anything a quizzer says to me, I can use as grounds to count them correct. So similarly, I feel like I can use any of it as grounds to count them incorrect. And if I'm just considering all of the information they're giving me, I don't see any way to call some of their answer, some of what they're saying an answer and some of what they're saying, not an answer. I, I feel like I have no way to make that call. And so um, what I try to lean on is, did the quizzer give me incorrect information? So it's not, I'm not saying that, you know, if the answer is John and the quizzer is in context and says Jesus, that I just let them keep going because um, I'm, I'm trying to say, I, um, I'll let you, I'll consider your first answer, your second answer, your third answer, your fourth answer. I just don't think there's any concept of an answer, but at the moment they say Jesus, I would consider them to be incorrect. And so when I'm ruling, I will say, I, I'm going to call you incorrect because you gave in, incorrect information. I will not say 
I have to take your first answer, which has been said a million times by Quizmasters, I will say, because you gave incorrect information. Now, in this case, if the answer is some sort of proper name or something like that, and a quizzer, even though they were within context in verse 10, says a different proper name or something, I think that would have been grounds to count them incorrect because they gave incorrect information. But if they merely, like, quoted verse 10 in its entirety and then, like, came back to verse 15, um, I, there's no way you can call them out of context. And I, I don't – like, there's no notion of pausing in the rulebook either as far as counting a quizzer incorrect. So um, it would have to – I would have to say, like, the quizzer – you will have to deem the quizzer to have given you incorrect information to count them incorrect in this case. The word quoting – um, does not appear in the rule book. There's no concept of that. Um, neither does whether a quizzer pauses or not have any impact on um, their first or second or third answer, I don't think. Yeah, exactly. I think I think for me, the pause thing, I think I, I can see where it came from, right? They, they, the, the district was interpreting that a pause denoted that the quizzer was providing an answer instead of quoting. But again, I'm sort of like, I don't see any of that actually in the rule book. Um, and so I was just, uh, yeah, I was taken, definitely taken aback by that. Well, we are a uh, couple of other things that came up. Can I say uh, one quick thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're going to say that a pause matters, like if a quizzer is quoting John 3.16 and says, for God so loved the world that, and then waits for five seconds and then finishes the verse, would you say like, well, your first answer was incomplete um, that's all I'm considering. So no, you know, it's yeah. like, like, yeah. where do you draw the line on what a pause is? Um, cause I think it, it, if you want to say that only the first answer of a quiz will be considered and you interpret that some way, because obviously it's not explicitly defined. I think I'm fine with that, right? We might have differences in interpretation in that part, but I think it's so bad to be using a word like, well, because they paused. Like, that's not a concept. Like, you can't use that as any basis for a ruling. That has nothing to do with interpretation. You just invented something and applied it um, to kids that weren't expecting it. Right. And, of course, even if that was in the rule book, I would hate it because uh, it's subjective. What what constitutes a pause? You know, taking a breath or two seconds? Like, uh, five seconds. Like it, it's just again, we're getting down this rabbit hole of subjectivism, and uh, yeah, I, I think it, it. And then of course, it, the moment we go there, there's going to be significant differences between quizmasters, different rooms, different uh, districts, and uh, there be dragons. So I just don't like yep. going down the, down that road. Agreed. Well, so one thing that came up, and I want to get your opinion on it. Um, it's something I had never considered before. So. It, um, uh, Zach Tinker is running this meet and he's doing a phenomenal job. And I really want to underscore that. Uh, I've just been super impressed with everything that Zach has been doing. He's, uh, had, uh, he's, con- uh, uh, worked on the draws. He's put together a very difficult schedule. I mean, difficult for him, difficult to put together, but he's done it. He succeeded. Uh, he's assembled these folders that are incredibly like, like my OCD just is, fully satisfied with these folders. I, I can't tell you they've, they're, they're all like, 
Uh, they have little name tags on each section and like, it's just beautiful. Like everything's organized exactly where you would expect it to be. Uh, I've just been very, very, very pleased with, with all of these things. So one of the things that Zach has done for us, uh, for the officials in the different rooms is he has provided in this packet for each room, a little handheld, uh, ta- not tape recorder, but I guess it's like a little handheld, uh, digital recorder kind of thing. And, uh, it's pretty simple. You just, there's like a record button. It records from a, you know, microscopic little mic, and then you can turn around and hit play and it plays back whatever was recorded, the, the, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I have a, a, a particular struggle hearing, uh, the, the words that come out of recordings like that. There, there's just the, the quality is very difficult for me to hear and, and, uh, ascertain. So what I did was I've brought my, uh, sort of my NPR mic from home. And I set it up at my table and hooked it up to my laptop because the, the gain is so much better. The quality of the recording is so much better. And if, if a quizzer is mumbling or is, is not facing the microphone or is off on a corner or something like that, which does happen, and I can't hear them myself, what ends up happening is the audio recording from this, you know, monster NPR mic picks them up uh, much more effectively than my ears do. So I can go back and, and usually hear things that I would miss even myself or my answer judge would, would miss. And so I have it all hooked up. Uh, but I also have, uh, headphones, uh, little, now they're not fancy headphones, but they're just little, um, earbuds, I guess, uh, for my, my laptop, because when I hit playback, if I have the earbuds in, I can hear much better than on the, you know, default speakers that come with, uh, with the laptop. So in my room, I've been doing the playback uh, by just putting the earbuds in my ear, hitting playback, listening, and then saying, okay, here's what I heard. Here's my ruling, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, I've never thought anything of it. I just thought that that seems fine. But a coach was actually talking to me uh, between uh, quizzes and said, well, you know, really the recording playback uh, from his perspective should be heard by all. And he want, I mean, he said, you know, it's not in the rule book. It's not, you know, something that he wanted to make a fuss about, but he just wanted to kind of throw out this idea of, yeah, really the recording playback should be heard by everybody, not just the QM of uh, QM and or AJ or other officials or so forth. So before I say my opinion, I sort of want it, Scott, what is your sort of, What's your kind of view on this one? So I'll first tell you what I've always done is well, almost always done is listen to it privately. Um, and um, after thinking about it, um, I can't remember how it came up. I think I had, I heard something about um, playing back recordings from internationals this year. And I was thinking about it and I think it should be played publicly. Now, um, and I think it was my first meet ever quiz mastering. I had to go to the recording and while I was, and this was, um, during a challenge, right? Um, during the point, the key point in the playback, um, and an involved coach was just like, Oh, they said it like out loud. <laughs> um, and I think because of that, I wanted it to be private because when I'm ruling on a challenge, I'm not inviting thoughts from the peanut gallery, right? <laughs> As opposed to, um, a protest. Um, and so I think in general, especially the district level, people don't really care that much. They just want the right ruling. <laughs> and so, um, that's one reason I've kept it private. And also at internationals using the handheld, um, recordings, 
Some um, sometimes it takes forever to seek to the right spot in the recording, and it's excruciating for everyone. <laughs> and so I like to just do all that scrubbing so that I spare people the details. But I think it should be public, right? Because there's there's nothing that you're hiding. Um, I definitely think that there are times when did the quizzer say it? Did they? Um, it's like t- maybe faint or not articulated and totally on the line, and. Maybe as a quiz master, you don't want to be open to second guessing on that, like, fine, like, maybe they said it, maybe they didn't quite pronounce it. But in almost all the cases, it's like, did they say it or not? And it's clear. And there's really no harm at all to that being public because most most all things should be public. Um, I think those are my thoughts. That's interesting. I have to give it some thought. Um, I... I am on the fence on this one, but I tend to think I'm on the other side of the fence than you are. And here's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, I don't think – actually, I'll say some things that I do know first. It does not matter what anybody else in the room hears. It only matters what I hear. Uh, Noel, and with the exception of the answer judge. Um, <laughs> so let me let me rephrase that. It only matters what I and the answer judge hear. It doesn't matter what anybody else in the room hears. So it's one of those things where if I'm listening back in the recording, I must like, like if they have to, if there's a word that they mumbled and I didn't hear it initially when they were talking and I, and I go back and I go to the recording to be like, did they say word X, right? What matters is that I hear them say word X, it doesn't matter if a coach hears them say it. It doesn't matter if other quizzers say it. Uh, it, it. I must hear them say word X or the inverse of that, right? Like if they said word X, that makes them wrong. Like did they say it? And I have to make sure they didn't say it to the best of my ability. Now, of course, now you're proving a negative, which is harder, right? Um, you know, like like did they mumble that word? And can I c- clearly make out that it's that word versus some other word, that kind of stuff? But um, usually I'm searching for a given word. Like, did they say the word the, right, you know, in a finish the verse? Because sure. they were, you know, screaming through, that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter that anybody else hears it. It only matters that I hear it. And so when I come back from those recordings, I'm going to say, I heard him say the, or I could not hear him say the. Right. So usually if, if, if the argument is they have to say the and that makes him correct. Right. And there's, there's a question on whether the was said. I won't say he didn't say the. I will say I couldn't hear him say the. Right. So because, again, he might have said the and just I didn't hear it and the recording didn't pick it up. Right. But mm-hmm. if a coach. But let's say he said the. Right. And I didn't hear it. The recording picked it up, but as I'm listening to the recording, I can't hear the, like, like, let's say he said it at like a dog whistle, like frequency or something, right? But like, there's, there's a coach with like incredibly awesome dog whistle ears, right? Um, I can't hear it. The coach can hear it, but that doesn't matter. What matters is whether I can hear it, right? So ultimately, by by making those recordings public, I'm 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 inviting interpretation, right? I'm inviting other people to say, "Well, I'm pretty sure he said it," you know, kind of stuff. Um, 
And again, it would go, it would be one of those things where let's say it goes to a protest, right? Because I mean, the only, the only sort of discernible thing would be if a coach, if I, I replay the recording and the coach is like, but I hear him say the word the, and then we go to a protest. And so again, what's going to happen at a protest? The, the coaches get together, I get together, the answer judge and the answer, answer judge and I are like, we've listened to the recording. We don't hear the word the. So we have to, so the whole point of the protest is we immediately have to go get the, the meet director who then comes in and he has to try to listen for the word the, right? But I would say from if the coach believes prior to the, you know, independent of the recording, like if the coach is like, he said the word the, right? Then the protest is still possible, right? Whether the recording is made public or not. So I think I think ultimately it doesn't buy you anything to have the recording public, and it actually uh, it inv it essentially invites other people to insert words there that that aren't necessarily there based on our bias, right? And we and humans do this all the time, right? Like if we want to believe something is there, we will see things that are there that are not there, and the inverse is also true, right? Um, and so like uh, a coach will hear things because they want those things to be there and, and the inverse being also true. And I'm not saying the coach is doing anything nefarious or bad or anything. It's just humans, you know, our brains work this way, right? We, we seek out the, the patterns that we want to match to, right? The answer judge and the quiz master don't have those biases because we're, we're, we're not rooting for anybody. Like we're not, we're not coaching anybody. We're trying to find out the definitive truth. If the coach really feels like we got it wrong, they still have the protest opportunity to bring in the meet director, who's that third set of ears. And I suppose you could bring in the scorekeeper, too. But um, the, the, the meet director could then get brought in as a third set of ears to listen and, and potentially say something. But then it's kind of like the, the idea of that happening seems so remote to me and extreme that I just don't see the the the. I don't see the value in making it public, and I just see all the negatives. All right. Well, I have a host more of interesting thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think now it could be that I'm biased, but um, I've definitely run across officials that um, did not want to admit being wrong after making a, uh, a ruling, and I think would definitely, um, if given the opportunity to keep things like that private, would um, – not be as unbiased as you might think officials will always be. Um, and another interesting th thought that I had is, um, like, in the district, I use a microphone in my room, and some of the other rooms either don't use a microphone or don't have recording at all. I would go so far at the internationals level, specifically, not, not quite necessarily the district level, to say that whatever recording devices are being used should be equal in all the quiz rooms. Because you could say that amazing Mike picking up tiny mumblings by a quizzer could potentially give those teams um, an advantage over teams in different rooms because of the um, ability to be heard. Now, you could say that there are enough differences in quiz masters and in room size and acoustics that that requirement is um, unnecessary. <laughs> but it, what you were saying about the only thing mattering is if you hear it is interesting to me because, um, you know, you know, is there a, an amount of 
um, other infer other people's opinions or experiences that would cause you to rule something that you didn't. I don't know. Uh, I think there's just a lot of interesting ways that you could think about this. Okay, so you said something. Two things very interesting there. The last two things. So the the differences in room, uh, like like my mic being better, that argument I can get behind. Um, I still think it should be private, but I can I can totally get behind the idea is of if everybody has a crappy if everybody else has a crappy mic system and I have a great one, I should adopt a crappy one so that my room is not appreciably different uh, because that would give an advantage to the mumbler in my room that that another mumbler in another room would not have. So there there I agree with you, right? Um, your but then your third point. Oh, now I forgot it because I'm so tired. What was your third point? Um, it was basically, you know, quizmasters will have different hearing abilities. What if you didn't hear something, honestly didn't hear something, and literally everyone right. else and, in the room say and everybody that they else did. did? That's the, but that's still the problem, right? So let's say I have terrible hearing. Now, if I have terrible hearing, I shouldn't be a quizmaster, right? But let's say I have terrible <laughs> hearing. If I don't hear it and everybody else in the room is saying, yes, we do hear it, as horrible as it would make me feel, I and, – and this is the thing. I would – I don't know. I would, pro- I would probably go along with what everybody else said in the room, but I would be wrong to do so. I would want to go along with what everybody else said in the room because I would want to count the quizzer correct and everybody is giving me a reason to count them correct. But ultimately, the rulebook says the quizzer has to be audibly understood by the officials, right? Like, I have to hear them. And so if my, if my hearing sucks, it's up to the quiz ma- – sorry, it's up to the quizzer to still, like, speak loudly enough to, to, to get me to understand. So in other words, an, another situation would be imagine a quizzer who comes up with a – quote these two verses and – does a, you know, uh, a, a Katie sort of moment and quotes them in two and a half seconds, right? Mm-hmm. And the answer judge and I are like, you know, and let's say it's very loud, right? She's she's very loud. She's very clear, but she's screaming through it at two and a half seconds for the two verses, right? Mm-hmm. The answer judge and I look at each other and we're like, whoa, and we say again slower, Right. She says it again, and this time she takes 20 seconds to get through it, right? But she makes a mistake. I say again, and she runs out of time, right? The room can say she said it correctly the first time, but the answer judge and I have to say, but we couldn't understand it. We didn't get it. No, and and that makes sense. And I've done that before where I was like, I didn't hear you say this, you know? Um and there's actually – I have to be careful what I say because there are two opinionated parties on either side of a certain scenario. But um, a quizzer was facing away from the quizmaster, said something that was not heard by the quizmaster, challenged, and the challenge and all the rebuttals were all they said it. And I, I don't remember what the end ruling was. you know. But in that, in that case, I'm like, well, if the quizmaster honestly didn't hear it, that's the key party. Even And even if all the quizzers are – being honest that the quizzer said it, you know? Right, right. Um, and I and I hate that, right? So, like, I, I if, if somebody said it correctly 
And there are multiple people, you know, even their their competition is saying, yeah, they said it, they should get it correct. I want to count them correct. And I and and knowing my own personality, I would probably try to convince myself to let it go this one time and actually count them correct. But I think logically I'm wrong to do that. That's interesting. Um, I think I agree with almost everything that you're saying, but I still think in the grand scheme of things, it's more of a net positive to have recordings be public. Okay, cool. Cool, cool. Um, oh, and kind of on the flip side, there have been times where a quizzer was saying something quietly or inarticulately, but I did hear them. And so I couldn't act like I didn't just because I wanted them to be better about the manner in which they were answering, right? I'm like, well, I did hear it. I ha- I'm going to count you correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Right, right. Well, we're a little over time, but let's uh, uh, let's do a couple of follow-up things. So you had mentioned in the notes about a follow-up from the last podcast about a word that can't be taken out of or can't take you out of context. What is What's that all about? So we were discussing that the rule book says one word can't take you out of context, and it was used on a finish the verse where the first four words were the same and the fifth word was different. And you said, although you think that you would want to be able to count the quizzer out of context, you couldn't. Um, and then I said, well, what if you have a CVR, one verse that says Jesus was there and another verse that says Mary was there? You couldn't call the quizzer out of context for that one word either, and you agreed with me. And I don't think any differently about that. You cannot call the quizzer out of context, but I definitely think you could call the quizzer incorrect for what they said, um, which would eliminate that kind of um, potential unintended consequence of this new language in the rulebook. That's true. You can count them incorrect unless it's – Let's but, but going back to the original, it's, it's a finish the verse where they quote the fifth word wrong – and they loop back around. They're they're not correct, but they're they have they have the thirty seconds to get it right. I'm not following. Um, sorry. Um, so let's say it's to finish the verse that the fifth word is the word that would if you counted those five words together would be a five word phrase that puts them out of context, right? Okay. But they quote the verse correctly of the verse that's on your card, except for that fifth word that puts him in the other verse. They're sure. not, they're not wrong. They have 30 seconds to go back and fix it. No, correct. I was just talking specifically about chapter verse references because oh, okay. Okay. as yeah. I, as I do, I try to say like, okay, there's this one thing I don't like. So how can I expose it for how bad it is by, bringing up other unintended consequences, yeah, which yeah. I thought I thought I successfully did in chapter verse references. And in a, I kind of did because you, in the situation I brought up, you can't call a quizzer out of context, even if they were totally in a different verse, but you could say that they were incorrect. They gave incorrect information. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's yeah. not like a quizzer can just say phrases from a different CBR verse and get away with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, we have a couple of new ideas uh, for that came up, and uh, we don't have a lot of time to dive into these because we're a little over time here. But um, I'll just kind of uh, mention them and let people kind of stew on them for a little bit, and we'll talk about them in a future podcast. But one idea that came up was uh, I was talking with a couple of uh, different uh, folks from different uh, districts uh, at, at the meals, and one district has a quizzing social. Uh, literally after every single district meet, uh, they they do it Saturday evening. They'll do sort of a, a dinner together, 
and uh, some of them will stay over and do uh, church the next morning. But I was thinking, wouldn't it be nice if we in P&W decided, now I know some teams, you know, have to get back on Saturday evening, but wouldn't it be interesting to try a an optional attendance dinner Saturday night at some restaurant or something uh, before everybody starts their drive back home? And if, you know, if you can't stay to, to attend that, you know, that's understandable. But for those who can, it'd be kind of a fun uh, additional social aspect of, of quizzing that would be kind of interesting. Uh, the second idea was uh, talking about the possibility of actually implementing adult quizzing uh, in PNW, almost like putting together an adult quizzing league. Uh, so starting fairly small, a couple of quizzes every meet, like one quiz per day or something. Uh, but of course, dealing with that and figuring out how to support that logistically without causing any kind of compromise to the junior high and high school program is, uh, is, is that's where the, the devil's in those details, certainly. Well, on your first one, in years past, there was a few families that would kind of spearhead something similar to that, and um, there was often between 10 and 30 quiz people meeting for pizza or something after Saturday night of quizzing. So um, I think that definitely is a fun thing. We are maybe a little more spread out. Um, there used to be a lot more concentration of teams north of, say, Tacoma, um, and now there's not, and there's more Oregon teams, which really do need to get on the road. But I think that definitely is a fun idea, especially in a very informal context. And then I think adult quizzing would be very fun, especially if you kept it small, maybe even limited it to key verses or something like that, at least to start. And you definitely could throw one right after prelims while um, semifinals bracket is getting calculated. Um, you could potentially throw one somewhere else, you know, um, and have um, small disruption to the schedule, if anything at all. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, one other thing that I wanted to mention before we close here is uh, I've actually met several different people from all over the U.S. and Canada that are actually listening to the podcast. So that's really awesome. I had no idea. There's there's uh, met somebody from Central. I met somebody from West PA uh, who listens. I met somebody from South Atlantic that li or South Atlantic. I forget the which one it is. Anyway, uh, several different districts were uh, folks were were listening and saying, "Oh yeah, I listen to the podcast, that kind of stuff." So I think that's fantastic. Uh, but it also makes me sad because we asked for people to email us and let us know that you're listening and and send us questions and comments and and feedback and so forth. And and we haven't heard from you. So if you are one of those people from a district that is not uh, P and W and you listen to the podcast, we'd love to uh, you know shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can email us at iq at cbqz.org and follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will wish you all a wonderful evening. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Griffin. See you all. <laughs> <laughs>